From New Mexico to Kentucky, Nebraska to Alabama, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, a new report has found states with less restricted COVID-19 pandemic policies had better health, economic, and education outcomes. Dr. Joel Zinberg from the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the Paragon Health Institute is here with details. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley has become the second entry into the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Those thousands of new IRS agents authorized in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act are going to be used to go after tips given to lower-income workers. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And Russia is preparing for a major spring offensive against Ukraine. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA has an American Radio Journal commentary on their prospects for success. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Freedom Wins is the title of a new report that found restrictive COVID-19 policies not only did not have positive benefits, but actually made the situation worse. Dr. Joel Zinberg is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and is director of the Public Health and Well-Being Institute at the Paragon Health Institute. He is co-author of the report and is here to discuss its findings. Joel, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Dr. The Report, Freedom Wins, states with less restrictive COVID policies outperform states with more restricted COVID policies. Tell us a bit about the overall parameters of this report. What all did you study? What we studied was the different lockdown-type measures, the restrictive measures that governments impose in in the 50 states, uh, and compared those measures to the economic outcomes, the health outcomes, and the educational outcomes in each of those states. And we were able to utilize the fact that in our constitutional system, each state gets to determine its own health policies. So therefore, we had different policies in all 50 states. Uh, And we compared that with a measure from the Oxford University School of Government called the Oxford COVID-19 Government Response Tracker, which is a systematic collection of uh, information on policy measures that different governments have taken to combat COVID-19. So it includes various health measures, economic measures, and a variety of restrictive measures that governments took. Let's take each one of those individually here and talk first about the economic impact. What was the economic disparity between the more restrictive and less restrictive states? So what we found was a very strong negative correlation, that the more restrictive states did much worse uh, in terms of economic outcomes. And, And what we, the economic outcomes that we were looking at were GDP, and uh, and employment. There was very strong correlation there uh, indicating that the outcomes were worse. Now, the other outcomes we were talking about, interestingly, was the the health outcome, which was really what these measures were touted as protecting. And there we found little or no impact on health. So in other words, the more severe states got very little in return, little or nothing in return in terms of improved health outcomes. And there we were looking at COVID mortality 
and all-cause excess mortality. And finally, the third measure was education. And there we were looking at the number of uh, in-person days of school that each state had. And various studies have tied that to uh, educational score outcomes. And again, we found a very strong negative impact. The more restrictive measures were, the less in-person schooling the kids in those states got. In terms of the health impact, was there any effort in this study to take a look at the mental health aspects and some of the ill effects that bad mental health has, such as increased drug use, et cetera? Not directly. Some of those things would be reflected in the what's called all-cause excess mortality. In other words, if there were increasing numbers of suicides, increasing number of opioid overdose deaths, that would be reflected in all-cause excess mortality. We didn't break those out, but they would be figured in there. And, and indeed, one of the authors, Casey Mulligan, who's an economist at the uh, University of Chicago, has done a separate paper, which we included in our discussion, indicating that indeed there were big increases in mortality, non-COVID mortality. We had a great divide and almost a parallel to the red state, blue state divide where you had states like Florida and Texas that were very free and allowed people to make their own decisions. And then you had states like California, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where there were draconian lockdowns. How did people in those states respond to the various approaches to treating the COVID pandemic? They responded by voting with their feet. You know, one of the things we did in this study, which is uh, relatively unique, is we looked at migration patterns in the country pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. In other words, we looked at the change in migration either into a state or out of a state in those two periods. And what we found was is you had a huge jump in domestic migration during the pandemic. That's the overall number. And we found that it was the migration was correlated with the severity of the lockdown measures. So in other words, people left states with severe measures, and they moved to states that had much more relaxed measures, more common sense measures. So we do an in-depth comparison in the paper of uh, California, which had about the third highest uh, score on that Oxford index, so very severe lockdowns, versus Florida, which had one of the lowest scores in the nation on the Oxford Index because of its sort of more common-sense uh, focused protection strategy. And it was, it was relaxing lockdown measures in the spring and summer of 2020. And we found that California, which had a very large pre-existing out-migration, jumped during the pandemic, a real surge in out-migration. And Florida, which had a large pre-existing in-migration pattern prior to the pandemic, had a big jump in migration into Florida. So, you know, people responded to these measures. They responded by voting with their feet. So what do we learn from all of this, doctor? We now have had a major pandemic. We've had these different approaches. Looking to the future, should, God forbid, there be another pandemic? What sort of approach do we take? What did we learn? One of the things we learned, and if you look back at the genesis of some of these lockdown measures, is that 
the policymakers were not really paying attention to some of the side effects of their measures. And they, number one, they were relying on flawed models, which we should not do again. And number two, they weren't considering or never, never mind balancing some of the poor economic and education outcomes that you would expect from these measures. So going forward, we've got to have policymakers who are not focused solely on what they unfortunately perceive to be health benefits, which didn't prove to be health benefits. They've also got to consider what are the economic and educational side effects of their policies, and they've got to do a real analysis of the costs and benefits of any policies they undertake. We have been talking with Dr. Joel Zinberg. He is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He is also director of Public Health and American Wellbeing Institute at the Paragon Health Institute. Doctor, tell us a bit about those entities. Where can folks go if they'd like to read this report? If they'd like to read the report, they can go to paragoninstitute.org. So Paragon is a nonprofit, nonpartisan health policy research institute that focuses on improving health and lowering prices by empowering patients, expanding competition through market-based reforms, and increasing innovation. And the Competitive Enterprise Institute is a Washington-based think tank that looks to reform government and decrease regulation and improve freedoms for American people. Dr. Joel Zinberg, doctor, thank you again for being here. My pleasure. As we typically do, it's time to talk with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, welcome back. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. The 2024 presidential cycle has begun already. Donald Trump, last year, in fact, announced his candidacy for election. This past week, we have a new entry, the second entry into the 2024 race. Tell us a bit about who and what. This week, former U.N. ambassador and former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, announced that she would be running for president for 2024 and seeking the Republican nomination. And she put out an announcement video and has certainly earned a lot of media because she's the big first name that's come out there to take on President Trump, who announced in late 2022. What impact do you see this as having on the race, Scott? Are we not expecting that there are going to be multiple additional entries here as we go through the next few months? Well, I think it's clear that there's a bunch of people that are taking a look at whether or not they're going to run for president. And with Nikki Haley's entry into the nomination fight, I think it's demonstrating to other candidates how Donald Trump is going to respond He's obviously talked about folks that have have served in his administration or that he's endorsed in the past, and he's tried to make it more of a a loyalty test. It looks like that's what he's doing this week with Nikki Haley. I'm sure she would argue that she's just providing a different vision for America and her contrast and experience as U.N. ambassador and governor of a big, big state, and that, that is actually quite early in the nominating process. We also have in 2024... Scott, a number of U.S. Senate seats, a third, of course, of the U.S. Senate up, as it is every even-numbered year, including a Senate race in Florida, which one time was a bit of a battleground, but seems now to be more solidly Republican. The Club for Growth getting involved in that race. That's right. This week, Club for Growth PAC endorsed Senator Rick Scott for re-election in his second term to be the senator of Florida. Marco Rubio just got elected to his third term. He was first elected in the 2010 wave. 
And Florida has been a battleground up until 2022 when Governor DeSantis won by 1.5 million votes and Marco Rubio was just slightly behind him. It certainly does seem like the trends are changing within Florida. However, Club for Growth PAC wants to ensure that Senator Scott's reelection is safe. He won his first election in 2018 by just over 10,000 votes in a really, really competitive seat against former Senator Bill Nelson. That was really one of the closest Senate races that we've had, especially in Florida, in a generation. So we hope Senator Scott cruises to victory, but we're not going to take anything for granted over here at the Club for Growth PAC. We, of course, will be keeping an eye on a number of very key U.S. Senate races in 2024. But, Scott, there is some business that needs to be taken care of in 2023, most notably the fact the nation has, yet again, hit its debt limit. What is the status of the discussions, and when is this going to actually become a serious problem? The Congressional Budget Office is a nonpartisan entity of the United States Congress. And they issued a new CBO report yesterday that says the date in which the U.S. could default on our debt obligations without a debt limit increase will be, quote, sometime between July and September. Well, that's a pretty big range in terms of dates. It doesn't tell us that the X date is July 15th or July 22nd or any specific date. It just throws out this big range. And it's problematic because what I think it actually does is it pushes the conversation onto the back of the August recess when many members of Congress expect to be on vacation, expect to take their congressional delegations throughout the world to visit other countries and and see what's going on. And it's also when they expect to have a little bit of downtime with vacation with their families. So when the August recess is, is in the back of everybody's mind, it's very similar to this issue that we have often with pushing the omnibus appropriations back up against the Christmas holiday. You get what's known as jet fumes here in Washington rolling throughout the hallways, and people start to smell those jet fumes, and really all they want to do is get the heck out of Washington. And so that's problematic because we know that the debt and deficit issue right now in America is the top issue for 2023. And we know that without fiscal reforms, we're going to have trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see every year. And our national debt right now exceeds $30 trillion. And so when you have such a large national debt, when you've printed all this trillions and trillions of dollars in coronavirus emergency relief, you know, you got the Biden stimulus out there. You've got the huge infrastructure law that was passed by Biden and all the Democrats. You've also got the Inflation Reduction Act. And then you have the omnibus that also increased spending. We're seeing inflation throughout America. And my deep concern, Loman, is that once we roll around into May and June and the summer months, when demand begins to increase for energy, that we're going to see gas prices soaring once again, well over $4 a gallon. And then core inflation that's sort of been maintained with increases in eggs and meat and all the things at the grocery store that we rely on to feed our families, those things are going to become even more expensive because of the transportation costs related to gas prices. Looking at the ongoing negotiations, Scott, the Biden administration wants this whole debt limit to stand alone, uh, just raise the debt limit, no discussion about curtailing spending or reforming spending. Is that really a realistic negotiating, actually non-negotiating approach? 
I think it's quite unfortunate. And the bottom line is we have a new House majority led by Speaker Kevin McCarthy that's unified in having real reforms that end trillion-dollar deficits, end big government, and end the national debt crisis. We, of course, are going to track this as it unfolds over the coming weeks and months. We'll do so with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have over 525,000 members from all over the country. If you want to learn more, check us out at clubforgrowth.org and sign up. Become a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. Thank you. It's not the millionaires and billionaires those thousands of new IRS agents are going to go after. They're going to make sure service industry workers report their tips. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has details. When President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act last year, the White House touted how the bill's $80 billion in new funding for the IRS would, quote, make our tax code fairer by cracking down on millionaires, billionaires, and corporations that evade their obligations. But it now appears that some of those resources and some of that coming crackdown on tax evasion will, quite predictably, be aimed at individuals earning considerably less. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a close look at the IRS's newly announced plans to raid workers' tip jars. That's right, a coming crackdown on what the IRS thinks is $1.6 billion in unreported tips will continue the tax agency's long and ugly history of targeting lower-income Americans, despite all the rhetoric out there from Democrats and from President Joe Biden about how the new tax cops are going to be going after, as we said, the millionaires, the billionaires, and the big corporations. But that, of course, is just never exactly the case when you end up beefing up the IRS, and we're going to see that all over again. So what is the IRS doing? Just last week, the Treasury Department and the IRS, in a joint statement, announced plans to overhaul the existing programs that track tips earned by service sector workers. The new program is tentatively called the Service Industry Tip Compliance Agreement, or SITCA, and the administration says that it will take advantage of advancements in point-of-sale, time and attendance systems, and electronic payment system methods to improve tip reporting compliance. Of course, workers who earn more than $20 per month in tips are already required to report their tips to their employers, and those tips are supposed to be included in the tax data that is sent along up the chain to the IRS. But a lot of that money doesn't make its way all the way into the government's hands. And if you've ever worked a service sector job, then you know that that's the case. Some of it, especially if it's in cash, ends up just in your pocket and it doesn't get reported anywhere. And actually, that's just fine. As part of the announcement on Monday, the IRS highlighted a 2018 Inspector General report from the Treasury Department that estimated $1.6 billion in tips went unreported during the 2016 tax year. So the IRS's proposal is meant to streamline both compliance with and enforcement of the tip reporting requirements. According to the notice that was published last week, it will do that by, quote, eliminating employee participation. The translation of that, of course, is that we'll simply make sure the government gets its cut of those tips by simply removing workers from the equation whenever possible. 
And that's something that the IRS can do now because so many tips are handled electronically as secondary transactions on credit cards after you buy a cup of coffee or pay your bar tab. If you pay with a credit card machine these days, you'll usually see a little second screen that pops up and gives you the option to leave you know, a 10% tip or a 20% tip, something like that. So here's a tip. Use cash to thank a service worker whenever possible. I try to keep some on me all the time, just some small bills so that I can uh, at least throw some money in the tip jar instead of doing it electronically. And then, look, if they report it and it gets taxed, that's great. If they don't, well, that's their decision and uh, everything works out just fine. The new Sitka program is not yet in place, and it still has to work its way through a complicated federal approval process. The IRS is right now collecting public comments on the proposal until May 7th. It could also be affected by the bill that the House passed just last month to rescind that new IRS funding that was included in last year's Inflation Reduction Act, although that proposal seems unlikely to pass the Democratic-controlled Senate or to get President Joe Biden's signature. But of course, the fact that the IRS is going to use at least some of its new resources to go after tips shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, despite all the promises from Biden and top IRS officials about how no one earning less than $400,000 a year would be targeted. As my colleagues at Reason, including Liz Wolf, have reported over the last few months, low-income taxpayers have always been the ones most likely to get hassled by IRS audits. In fact, during 2022, low-income wage earners who qualified for the earned income tax credit were five times more likely to be audited than any other taxpayer in the system. And that data comes from a report from Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse. It also, of course, fits snugly within the Biden administration's plans for a comprehensive financial account reporting regime that the Treasury Department outlined in 2021 with a promise to significantly increase the cost of tax evasion. That means not just more electronic collection of taxes, but also more reporting requirements. And of course, every one of those requirements creates more opportunities for somebody to fill out a form incorrectly or misreporting something, which could trigger an audit, which could trigger further investigations. It's just more opportunities for the government to go sniffing around inside the books of any business where those taxes might not be adequately reported. And look, let's be fair about this. The Biden administration is technically keeping its promise here to not raise taxes on anybody earning more than $400,000 a year. After all, these are taxes that, yes, taxes that are technically owed, taxes that should be paid. But ramping up compliance on low-income people is obviously one way that you can close the tax gap and probably an easier way to get additional revenue for the government than by going after those millionaires and billionaires that you often hear Democrats demonizing. Because as far as the IRS's incentives go, targeting the working poor to collect some of that extra money makes perfect sense. Wealthier Americans have the resources to fight back against an audit. But there might be $1.6 billion in unreported tips out there, and most of that, probably all of that, was collected by people who don't have an accountant on retainer. So when the IRS comes calling, they're not going to have a whole lot of help. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out more of our coverage of the IRS, the Biden administration, and everything else going on in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Will the Russian spring offensive into Ukraine be successful? Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA thinks it will not. He explains why on this American Radio Journal commentary. As we approach the anniversary of Vladimir Putin's immoral and, at least so far, ineffective assault on Ukraine, 
there are signs that Russia will mount within days its largest offensive action yet. The Atlantic Council, a respected think tank founded over 60 years ago, recently released its assessment of the expected spring offensive. Quote, This widely anticipated offensive is an attempt by Moscow to regain the initiative following months of battlefield defeats and humiliating retreats in Ukraine that have undermined Russia's reputation as a military superpower. Vladimir Putin is now desperate to demonstrate that his invasion is back on track. He has reportedly massed huge reserves for a new push to overwhelm Ukraine's defenses. However, after a year of catastrophic losses that has left many of Russia's most prestigious military units seriously depleted, doubts remain over the ability of untested replacement troops to carry out large-scale offensive operations. Initial indications are not encouraging for the Kremlin, to say the least. Thousands of Russian soldiers, including elite Marines and Special Forces troops, are believed to have been killed in late January and early February during a badly bungled attempt to storm the town of Vuladar in eastern Ukraine. The failed attack sparked widespread dismay and anger among pro-Kremlin military bloggers, with many accusing Russian army chiefs of incompetence. The disaster contributed to what British military intelligence said was likely to be the highest rate of Russian casualties since the first week of the invasion. The UK independent newspaper estimates Russia is massing around 1,800 tanks, 700 aircraft, and 500,000 men for its spring assault on Ukraine. The Wall Street Journal estimates that Russia has lost 50% of its best tanks and is now relying on Soviet-era tanks in storage, many of which are in poor operating condition. There may be as many as 300 to 500,000 troops involved, but a large portion of them are convicts released from prison that have been referred to as cannon fodder. They have had little military training and reportedly many suffer from acute alcohol abuse, further reducing their reliability. Still, the tanks and troops are in such large numbers that they may capture a substantial amount of Ukrainian territory, but they are unlikely to be able to hold it. If there's one lesson modern military planners learned from the U.S. military in Iraq, it's that winning territory in urban street fighting is much easier than holding it. Aside from the military statistics, there's a much larger moral problem for Putin. With videos from literally millions of handheld phone cameras depicting the human rights abuses by the Russians will be easier than ever before in history. The entire world will be repulsed on such a scale that Putin will begin to lose support from his main remaining allies, Belarus, China, and India. The Russian people will finally turn on Putin, although I am astonished at how long he's retained their popular support. As the number of missing Russian men, presumed dead, mounts, Russia's mothers and sisters will eventually realize that they have been deceived by Putin's propaganda and they will turn on him. And how worried should we be that an increasingly desperate Putin will turn to some form of nuclear weaponry to obliterate what he cannot conquer? I think it's less of a concern than many in Biden's defense establishment fear. 
I don't want to appear unrealistic in minimizing that risk, but the very nature of military command and control means that he would need to rely on a long chain of military professionals to trigger nuclear weapons. Even though riddled with alcoholism, Russian military leaders are professional enough and intelligent enough that they are likely to balk at carrying out orders to employ even so-called tactical nuclear weapons. I'm convinced that he will be toppled before he is able to detonate nuclear weapons on any large scale. Casualties on both sides will be tragically high in the next few months, but as long as the U.S. and other NATO countries and allies provide enough weapons and ammunition, the Russian offensive will stall as a combination of poor training, poor maintenance, and inadequate supply lines take their toll, and Ukraine will prevail. There's no justification for negotiating peace with Vladimir Putin. A negotiated peace is no answer because it would give Putin some of Ukraine's territory. He deserves none of it. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WMAN-AM and FM in Mansfield, Ohio, along with KIRC-FM and KSLE-FM in Shawnee, Oklahoma. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.